Welcome back to Paris Lesbos. One of us is a pixie, the other one gets called Rena. Who is it this week? We're sticking around in Europe for the start of 2024 with a rather odd but sadly not much written about woman, Baroness Olga de Meyer. Ooh, a baroness. Classy. As I said, you've probably not heard of her except in passing, perhaps in other women's biographies like Winnerette Singer's. Before we dive into the interesting bits, we start, as always, at the beginning. The year is probably 1871 in England. Oh, probably? Yes, and before someone goes screaming in the comments, many of the sources do not even bother to list her birth year. In fact, side note, many historians and biographers themselves either provide inaccuracies or utilize vague wording when discussing people and events, or even leave things out. All right, so one of those women of mystery that we've had before. Born Olga Caracciolo, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that, my Italian sucks. Many believed her to be the illegitimate daughter of King Edward VII of England. It was a rumor no one bothered to correct, though some people believe her to instead be the illegitimate daughter of Prince Poniatowski, an officer in service to Emperor Napoleon III of France and a friend to both Olga's mother and King Edward VII. Something's going on here. She's the daughter of some important guy. Certainly, but either way, it is likely that she was illegitimate, a fact that led society women to not acknowledge her or her mother. Meanwhile, men flocked to the salon her mother hosted at their villa in Dieppe. Her mother also appears to have lived openly with a lover, not entirely sure who many people don't give a name here, but it is not conducive to social propriety and acceptance either. That said, I would not call her life a hardship compared to some others that we've seen on here. So she wasn't traumatized by her mother being so disgraceful and shocking. As to how it affected her growing up, we have little information as there is no actual biography on her, just snippets spread out across books, including one that is about her husband, about, uh, I believe it's called De Meyer by Philippe Julien and Robert Brando. Out of print, as many things are, thankfully, it is quoted from in other books like Of Passions and Tenderness, which we do have a copy of. I do imagine there's some strain from the illegitimacy talk, especially as there's even less mention of her mother's husband, a Neapolitan duke, many don't believe was Olga's biological father. Yeah, so that sounds like there was a bit of tension in there. And speaking of Neapolitans, and I mean the people, not the ice cream, <laughs> Olga is mentioned as being married to a Neapolitan nobleman in around 1892, followed by divorce in 1899. However, there is almost no mention of this marriage in the limited sources, despite a family friend apparently calling it a short and most dramatic union, a statement that leaves even more questions, though I can't see this woman climbing atop a dresser and brandishing an umbrella a la Winnerette Singer. Still, that sounds like a, a pretty explosive relationship. I imagine it was, but instead everyone focuses on her second marriage. Her second marriage? Yes, her marriage to Baron Adolf de Meyer, a photographer, 
It was supposedly arranged by King Edward VII right before he took the English throne, in which case it probably happened in 1896 in London. Oh, and, and why do you think King Edward VII would be arranging this marriage? There is, again, the illegitimacy talk of, oh, it's his illegitimate daughter, therefore he has an interest in it. That would make sense. Adolf and Olga's reasons for the marriage were varied. He needed the cover that marriage provided, especially in the wake of Oscar Wilde's trial for homosexuality. She needed to retain her social position and was in need of money. They each got what they wanted, plus Olga dragged him up the social class ladder in spite of the rumors around her birth. Now, while they each had their own reasons for the marriage, they both possessed social ambition and had the same artistic tastes. So that sounds like a good partnership, even though they're not into each other in the way that you would, you know, expect from today's standards. And lucky for them, she was bisexual and he was gay, but they greatly enjoyed each other's company, which kind of reminds me when we talked of Winnaretta Singer and her husband. Both very good friends enjoyed each other's company, but did not have a sexual relationship of any kind. <laughs> They're partners. Yes, in fact, the Baron's biographers, Julian and Robert, uh, they even called them as mutually dependent as a pair of trapeze artists. Wow, that's beautiful. Uh, basically, you couldn't have one without the other. They may have appeared at the king's coronation, further fueling rumors of her being Edward's illegitimate daughter. There is, however, conflict in the recollections of attendees, so I can't conclusively say if they attended. Why am I picking up that this is the theme of this episode? I thought the theme was passionate Italian at somethings, a la <laughs> the description of her later affair with a particular woman. Well, that might be. So, <laughs> so we've talked about um, Olga and her social status and her marriage. Uh, do we know if she did anything, or was she just a person about town? We get to the very interesting time of women getting into fencing, albeit with foil because it is the lightest blade of the trio. <laughs> you and your fencing stereotypes. What's wrong with foil? Okay, backstory of fencing time. Foil is the lightest blade. It's an acknowledged fact in fencing. Epe is the heaviest. Foil is originally meant as a training blade to epee. It has this thing called right-of-way that they also have in sabers, basically meaning uh, you can't score a touch that counts if you are retreating, going backwards, rather than advancing, going forwards. It also throws out double touches, where you both hit each other at the same time. Epe doesn't have any of that. You hit, you hit, you're stabbed, you're stabbed. The Wild West of Blades. The closest to the actual dueling and warfare that fencing evolved out of. Gotcha. So so you're saying foil is fencing light? In a way, yes. But you're also coming into the stereotypes and social thinking about women at this time. Oh, women are more delicate. They don't have as much strength. We'll give them the lightest blade. That makes sense. But... I think you should say it more controversially so that people will add us in the comments. So she was a fencer. <laughs> yes, though we know little for certain about her fencing career. 
we do have some evidence that she was at a competitive level. In the biography we have about to be Lowther. And if anyone actually wants to go look at these sources, they're always on the website. There's always at least one link to the website in the YouTube video description if you're listening there. So one of the recorded competitions was at the Ladies' Army and Navy Club with Tupi Lowther and Winneretta Singer, who I don't really picture fencing. Yeah, but I don't know. Fancy lady pastimes, I guess. It is unclear if the tournament took place in 1902, but we do know it was in London. There are also references to Olga being the amateur woman fencing champion of Europe, though she also competed in tournaments in the U.S. as she once fenced against the women's California champion right before World War I. Wow, so she is an international fencer. Yes, but that California-USA match was apparently an exhibition bout rather than an actual competition. Right, but of course we know that women can't seriously compete in sports. Yeah, that's that's an interesting... Um, tension because definitely in early sports it wasn't people didn't take women as athletes as seriously I feel like that's doubly so for fencing because it is to this day seen as a rich person's sport mm-hmm. right so how much is it you know I'm I'm going to go for a bout of croquet and some fencing uh <laughs> versus how much is it like, oh, this is a trained athlete? I can't say for certain in the case of Olga. I do know it sounds more like Tupi Lowther was a bit more competitive, professional fencer type of deal for the time, but... Yeah, I definitely got that impression when we did that episode. Listen to our episode on Tupi Lowther. Anyway, steering back from that stabbing interlude... Remember when I said he's gay, she's bi, and you may remember Olga vaguely from Winneretta Singer's episode? Yes. We do indeed have an affair here. At roughly the start of 1905, Singer re-enters society after the death of her husband and runs smack into Olga at the Demire Salon. So Singer's biographer, Sylvia Cahan, describes Olga's passionate Italianate nature as the counterbalance to Singer's dry wit and taciturn demeanor. Alas, no one explains what passionate Italianate nature means here. I mean, you know those Italians, they're always hand gesturing, they're eating lots of good food. See, I was thinking it was supposed to be some subtle reference to she's a lady in the streets but a freak in the sheets, which... (laughs) To be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that's what it was supposed to mean, because we do have some anecdotes, if you've listened to the Singer episode, of Winneretta possibly being into BDSM. Ooh, so <laughs> passionate Italian, it could, could be a euphemism for <laughs> into BDSM. That would be so cool, but we probably will never know. Yeah, I don't think we will ever know. What we do know is that while it was a discreet affair, just as Singer liked, there was gossip. Now, they did continue the affair despite the whispering of their peers. And then in 1907, Singer accused Baron de Meyer 
of not repaying a loan of 1,500 pounds she'd given him two years earlier. Was this something that they had a problem with? Like, was he bad with money? Or did they have, was this like a situation of jealousy? As the story goes, he had a receipt, at least, signed by her saying that he had, in fact, paid back that loan. But this whole blow up her Olga's relationship with her, it gets a bit odd here. Because we have Singer's biographer at one point stating the affair lasted almost a decade. But then there's also indication that Olga sent a letter stating the rupture over this whole blow up was definitive. So we're not sure if the affair actually lasted more than two years or if the start date is correct here. Ah, so continuing with our running theme, sources vary. <laughs> Who's to say? During all this time, you may have gathered that Olga does actually care for her husband. He's not blending into the wallpaper off as some shady figure. Nor is he the villain. He's not preventing her from living her life how she wants. It seems like they're working in concert. Yes, in fact, she's the one who encourages him to pursue photography. Again, according to his biographers, uh, Philippe and Robert, they were rarely apart. Prior to 1914, they spent a great deal of time in London. In fact, she helped bring the Ballet Russe to London in 1911. Ooh, that's a familiar uh, group to this podcast. It was reported that Olga was the most fashionable woman and that all the opera glasses would be turned towards her when she entered her box. We also get a paragraph here of what her life was like at the time, courtesy of the book of Passions and Tenderness and the editor Alexandra, who did the, for this episode, very helpful biographical blurb at the front of a book about photographs. Her mornings were given up to rhythmic gymnastic exercises, massage, beauty culture, the hairdresser, and the manicurist. As Monsieur Blanche noted, and no, I do not know who Blanche is. Before well, you ask. A woman of mystery, truly. So, so she was a fencer, a sapphic lover, a patron of the arts, and clearly a fashion icon. Is, is this all there is to Olga de Meyer? Well, actually, that isn't the end of the blurb. Oh, no. At midday, she fenced, then came the swimming baths. I sometimes found her clothed in her black satin costume, practicing with her fencing instructor, who, at one time, has trained actors at the Comédie Française. When she was worn out, she lay down on a couch, and newspapers were read to her. There were three telephones, one for her secretary, one for the baron, and the third for her butler. She dictated letters. Her permanent visitors at lunch were Henry Melville, Cosmo Gordon Lennox, Gertrude Kingston, Condor, and Madame Eugenia Erasuris, famous for her beauty. There were also bohemians who the king pretended to ignore who in those days did not take the astonishing Olga for his model. Condor painted her in Spanish costume as a page. Sargent sketched her head in charcoal, 
Her husband photographed her in all her dresses and her headgear in his studio in Chelsea. So she's not just being admired. She's actually the muse for artists. Yeah, she is primarily remembered as an artist model for both painters and for her photographer husband. I will say, looking at the photos, she greatly resembles Maud Adams, if Maud had a devious streak, because I cannot see this woman play the innocent Peter Pan or any other of Maud's roles. And I say that just by looking at the photos. Yeah, she has a, a certain glimmer of something behind the eyes. Side note, Olga did do more than pose, but her 1916 autobiographical novel, Nadine Narska, was quickly forgotten after publication, so you're more likely to encounter other people's fictionalized versions of her. There are also indications that a short story of hers became the 1919 or 1920 film The Devil's Passkey, directed by Eric von Strongheim. Oh, our friend. But both the story and film are lost. Wow, so we just don't get a lot from her. It's it's about her, or tangential to her. Now, to give you an idea of her writing, there are reports that critics called her novel a miscellaneous mixture of paganism, diluted Nietzsche, worldly morals, and the doctrine of reincarnation. Ooh, all right. According to Wikipedia, the film synopsis has it being about a woman in need of a loan who had to have sex as collateral for it, but she refused. Her refusal leads to the fake scandal being printed in papers in order to set up a blackmail scheme against her. Eventually, the whole real story comes out, and there's a happy ending. I have no clue, though, how much was changed from the original story. It's interesting, though, because it's about stories about a woman rather than her own voice coming through. <laughs> and what do we have here? As World War I arrived, the Demires arrived in New York City almost penniless. Though they didn't cut back on their lifestyle despite the Baron's assets being frozen in England, as there were suspicions of him being a German spy. Why? The name? I suspect it was the name. Still, he quickly ended up at Vogue and Vanity Fair, while she became a patron of the arts there. All right, so following the pattern from before, she sees a, a window for arts to flourish, and she makes that a thing. They also befriended a Russian emigre who introduced them to mystical spiritualism. With him, they each took new spiritual identities and names. Hers was Mara. Now, had they had any sort of spiritual life before this? Um, I mean, you do hear about people having conflicts with the Christian church um, or with various Christian churches because of their sexualities. I really don't know because we have such little information. Fair enough. So whatever happened up until this point, they are now this particular type of spiritual. In fact, post-World War One. We have even less information on her. How is that even possible? You would be surprised. <laughs> Great. And what we do have is not good. 
There's talk of lacquered and opium-perfumed 1920s with a dash of the spiritualism that we see during the war. Neither of the Demires took aging with grace either, it sounds like. How so? There's talk about their refusal to grow old, and it led to them looking ridiculous. I'm picturing a couple of about 50-year-olds going clubbing, taking exotic trips to Egypt and Constantinople, as they did, and then they were smoking opium with the shell-shocked, say, roughly 28-year-olds. In the Passions book, some indicate this may have turned them both into parodies. Mm, so they're kind of, they were already larger than life, but now they're much larger than life. One thing led to another, and Olga developed a drug addiction that extended to cocaine. You wouldn't know it from her portraits, though. These continued to show her in up-to-date fashion with distinguished and ethereal features. Perhaps it was to not only hide the ravages of drugs, but also the fact that it seems like she disliked aging. We do have an excerpt of how she was viewed during this time. So, excerpt coming out of the... Her husband's biography, again. Nervous, drugged, surrounded by ambiguous friends, and accompanied by a too conspicuous husband, Olga had become frankly spiteful. Her scandal-mongering had eliminated the last of her respectable friends, and people visited her only because they could be sure to find a pipe of opium or a sniff of cocaine. Oof, so that's a... Far cry from the discreet society lady she had been earlier. Perhaps it's not surprising, then, that she is reported to have died at the age of 59 in 1930 or 1931 after a heart attack. Said heart attack is probably due to drug addiction, while she is said to have been undergoing treatment for said addiction in an Austrian hospital a lot of hedging there. It sounds like we're not certain exactly what happened or when. Just like her birth, there's fog here. The date isn't exact. In various books and so forth, people are just saying the 1930s. Wow, so even her death is unclear. Yes, the most narrow it gets down to is 1930 or 1931. She is also said to have been buried in Baden, Germany. But who's to say, right? As is noted in the Passions book edited by Alexandra, ambiguity surrounds Olga de Meyer. You can catch glimpses of her here and there as you traipse through this time period in milieu, yet she's always just out of reach. A sensation that is not helped by facts dissolving into anecdote and contradiction. Like Violet Trefusis calling the Demires pederast and medisant because he looks so queer and she has such a vicious tongue. In fact, that same short blurb in Passions ends with many questions that this episode has not been able to answer either. Questions like, how did she feel about her marriage to the Baron? Did the drugs she took imply that tragic conflict and considerable frustration and unhappiness surged beneath her perfect exterior? Her ageless poise, her consummate skill at keeping up appearances, or was her only terror that of becoming passé, of slipping off the perpetual carousel 
of the fashionable. Though her appearance was always correct, her behavior was unconventional. How was she marked by her unorthodox childhood in her, and her notorious illegitimacy? Did she care that she never had children of her own? In a few of these pictures, her jaw has a decisive set and her piercing eyes flash with a shrewdness and wit that contradict her passive poses. And yet, photos do not speak, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the whole pictures worth a thousand words, but, you know, in a time when appearances were everything, who's to say how much of this is real and how much of this is being put on? Thanks for listening. Subscribe to learn about more female creatives that history left behind, and also the famous ones with a few straights just sprinkled in. We're on YouTube, in addition to Apple Podcasts, the websites, and I think also Blueberry. Let us know in comments who you would like to see of all these sapphics of this era. We do take suggestions. And remember, you too can do great and scandalous things with a measure of privacy, as long as you muddy the waters a bit.